and welcome, as they used to say on the classic TV show Top Gear, to an Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind special. Unfortunately, Josh and I are not uh, finding the source of the River Nile or uh, going on an amazing trek through Bolivia, but we are doing something slightly different. We always try to keep it fresh here on this podcast. And today is the debut of a new semi-regular series that we're going to call Spotlight. Spotlight after the Academy Award winning film and the Washington Post uh, investigative team that it describes. Some studies we find are too significant or too interesting for us to gloss over them in half an episode. Doing so means that we skip details on demographics because they're not necessarily relevant or we don't have time to really delve into the backstory. But sometimes we do want to do all of those things and we're going to use these spotlight episodes to devote our full attention to a single study. So we, in these episodes, we'll aim to apply a magnifying glass to the study, picking it apart, discussing the pros and cons and potential applications to an oncologist's daily practice in more detail. The study we've chosen for our first episode is a study published in December 2022 in the ASCO uh, Journal of Medical Oncology, examining the use of docetaxel as a radiosensitizer in the treatment of early head and neck SCC. Josh, how'd you like my intro for this exciting new direction we're taking? It's good. I also really like this segment because it's what we have been doing just in more detail. Exactly. And it's it's good when we want to focus on a minutiae of oncology treatment. We're trying to, in most episodes, give a give an overarching sense of what to do when you're confronted with a patient. But sometimes we feel, particularly with practice changing articles such as this one, that they deserve a little bit more attention. Michael Keaton, they really do. (laughs) Well played, Josh. In terms of the background, I might just dive into this one, Josh, because it's a good one. So we have spoken previously about head and neck cancer in the early space that is locally advanced, either in the adjuvant setting or the definitive setting, the treatment is chemoradiotherapy. And the and the agent of choice for these patients is cisplatin. But a significant proportion of patients with head and neck cancer are cisplatin ineligible, which means that there is something, there is a, a constellation of factors frequently that means that it's not safe to give them cisplatin chemotherapy. Michael, I think the statistic is something like up to 50% are cisplatin ineligible. So it's sort of hit or miss, right? It is hit or miss, but there is a very significant gap in the literature about what to do for these patients. And most of the regimens used are not really supported by significant burden of evidence. So that's what makes this article practice changing. Uh, Josh, what in your experience are the most common causes of cisplatin ineligibility? Mr. Keaton, I I know the answer to this question. I'm Stanley Tucci in this reference, if anyone wanted to know, with a fair bit more hair. But the common... No, you have far too much hair. (laughs) Yeah, I was just going to say, you have have far too much hair for Stanley Tucci. But I have the charisma. (laughs) Probably don't. Michael, the common causes of cisplatin ineligibility, hearing impairment, pre-existing renal impairment, pre-existing peripheral neuropathy, poor ECOG with an age above 70. I think the age is very much uh, individual. How are they actually functionally? Patients with poor ECOG, 
or age greater than 70 have higher treatment-related mortality according to one analysis. And the most common in the article is renal impairment, but I, Josh, find hearing impairment to be much more common. Why, why is this important? First, first and foremost, head and neck cancer is a horrific cancer. We've spoken about this in the past. It's not just the mortality rates, it's the morbidity as well. And that's largely based and that's largely derived from the anatomical location. And so, I mean, you could say this about every cancer, but you do need to take every opportunity to maximize a patient's outcomes. The addition of concurrent chemo to radiotherapy provides an additional survival benefit of around 6.5% at the five-year mark, which is small, but it's definitely not nothing. It can be the difference, obviously, between having a loco-regional recurrence, uh, requiring surgery or further radiotherapy, neither of which works as well the second time around. So, As we've said previously, the ideal treatment for this space is cisplatin delivered either in a weekly at a dose of 40 milligrams per meter squared or a three weekly at 100 milligrams per meter squared regimen, low and high dose respectively. The aim is to get is to get more than 200 milligrams per meter squared of cisplatin into a patient over a course of their treatment. There are several alternative regimens, but the evidence behind these is fairly minimal, as mentioned before. Cetuximab used to be in vogue, but it's largely not used due to several later studies determining a lack of efficacy, particularly in the HPV-positive patients. Carboplatin and 5U or carboplatin and paclitaxel are largely extrapolated from their use in other types of SCC, such as uh, esophageal cancer with the CROSS study, but there's no real evidence in the head and neck cancer space. For single-agent carboplatin alone, there's actually evidence that it does not improve outcomes over radiotherapy alone. So in many cases, the best evidence has actually been for no radiosensitizer at all, but we still aim to give patients some, even if they are cisplatin ineligible. The reason that the, uh, the authors have chosen docetaxel for this study is that it had demonstrated promise in phase one and two studies, but there was no comparative evidence prior to this study confirming benefit over radiotherapy alone. So looking at the study, and and we'll go into more detail as we've said than we previously have, it is an open label, single centre superiority study. Now, Josh, what do you take away from that one statement? It's frequently the first thing you read in the methods of any article is the study design. So open label, single center, what do you take from that? I prefer to be called Stanley, just if we're going to do this properly. No, we're not doing that. We're (laughs) not doing that. (laughs) So single. I'll start calling you Rachel if you're not careful. I love Rachel Adams or McAdams. She's amazing. Um, You love her so much that you don't remember her name. Well, you know, there's two very similar actresses. The issue with a single centre and probably this episode is me, but the biggest issue with the single centre is that it opens you up to selection bias as treatment is not being tested in a wide range of demographics and ethnicities, but that's already a massive issue in any clinical trials and most people end up being Caucasian and you're like, well, that doesn't represent the majority of the world's ethnicities. And specifically, this study was conducted at Tata Memorial Hospital in Mumbai, India. You might recognize the name Tata from Tata Group, which is a massive multinational conglomerate based in India. They do cars, they own, I think, Land Rover and a couple of other companies, but they also own hospitals and donate a lot of their money 
to charity, just as a sidebar. This episode brought to you by Tata Motors. Yeah, right. Yeah. If you want to sponsor us, please shout out. While, 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 so, <laughs> <laughs> so different, different populations have different risks to head and neck cancer with smoking and alcohol being common in Western countries, Epstein-Barr virus driven cancers and other carcinogens such as beetle nuts are endemic in certain areas such as Southeast Asia. Open label means no matching placebo. Potential for selection bias is both patient and investigator aware of patient assignment. While there may be a practical component, studies would ideally have matching placebo for docetaxel. How does that sound? Was that a good answer, Michael? I think it's a, it's a very good answer, Josh. So moving on, the study enrolled patients with oral cavity, oropharyngeal, hypopharyngeal, laryngeal, or squamous cell cancer of unknown origin. So a lot of different types of cancer. The definition of cisplatin ineligibility, which in many cases is a bit, a bit of a vibe, if you will. Patient might come in and they might have a bit of tinnitus, but you know, there's nothing uh, objective. And it's sort of, you know, we base it on this, we base it on that factor, but they had a very clear definition in this study. So a patient only need to have one of the following factors. If they were ECOG of two, they had organ dysfunction, including tinnitus of grade two or more, or even in some cases, borderline organ dysfunction, for example, with a left ventricular ejection fraction of less than 50%, which could cause problems with the prehydration required for cisplatin or non-correctable renal dysfunction with a creatinine clearance of greater than 50 mils per minute, which was assessed as being purely due to high body weight. So they've thought a little bit outside the box here as well. Cisplatin hypersensitivity, that's an obvious one. The loss of greater than 10% of body weight in the last six months, which is unfortunately quite a common thing to see with head and neck cancers, particularly very locally advanced ones. Malnourished status defined as a BMI of less than 16 kilograms per meter squared and concomitant use of nephrotoxic drugs where the drugs could not be stopped for other medical reasons. Uh, so this is very good variety of primary cancers, which increases how you can apply this data to a general head and neck population, because in a clinic, you will see a laryngeal, an oropharyngeal, a hypopharyngeal. You're not just going to see one type of cancer. And they are, while they're similar, I often refer to them when I'm describing them to patients as sort of cousins, they do have slightly different characteristics. The strict definition of cisplatin ineligibility is something else that I like. As I mentioned, sometimes it's sort of more of a vibe than anything else. Uh, and it would have been very easy for the authors to say uh, that cisplatin ineligibility, for example, was assessed by the investigator. That's something we see in other studies, not infrequently. But to have rigid guidelines prevents heterogeneity in populations, prevents uh, patients sneaking in to the study where they might not have otherwise been appropriate. The patients were randomized to receive docetaxel weekly at 15 milligrams per meter squared for the duration of their radiotherapy or radiotherapy alone. Now, Josh, there is a little bit of a subtlety here, and it's a subtlety that I didn't know until recently, that some patients will get six weeks of radiotherapy and some will get seven. Now, this is not in terms of how much they can tolerate, it's how much they're planned for. Do you know why there is that difference? Well, I'm not a radiation oncology specialist. It's all to do with the intention. So the definitive patients will get seven weeks as they have not had surgery. So there's no need to maximize treatment to killing the cancer. Patient with high risk features, so those that have positive margins, really large primary tumors, lymph nodes that are sort of extranodal or resected on resection margins can have adjuvant therapy, which typically goes over six weeks. That is correct. 
10 points. 10 Although, points to Gryffindor. Still. We're, we're, both, we're both Hufflepuff. Um, <laughs> so the endpoints of the study were overall survival, disease-free survival, loco-regional failure-free survival. And in terms of the assessments, patients received um, a CT scan three months after completion of the treatment. And in the... Def- the patients receiving treatment in the definitive space, they also received a PET scan. If there was evidence of recurrence, patients were treated according to the institutional protocol, once again at Tartar Memorial Hospital. Josh, do you want to go through the demographics of this study? Yeah, we're racing through this trial. I'm loving this. So 356 patients were put in the driver's seat, randomized one-to-one to either the docetaxel arm or the standard of care arm. Median age is pretty similar, so 63 and 61, with over the age of 70 also being similar. I'm going to try and group these because statistics you never really remember. But what I did find interesting was the ECOG performance status. So about half of the patients in each group were ECOG 1 and about 40% were ECOG 2. And so that's quite interesting. When we look at the habits, lots of patients were oral tobacco chewers, which we're probably less likely to see here somewhere like Australia, uh, and quite a high rate of patients were smokers as well. The disease site was strewn across a number of cousins, including the majority being the oral cavity, followed by the oropharynx, then the larynx and the hypopharynx. And majority of patients actually had quite large tumors, which means probably late presenters. So they were T4 disease in nearly half of each group and about 30% approximately were T3. So that's, that's probably a red flag, I would say, when you're looking at a heterogeneous group of patients presenting, we already know this is an advanced disease. Most of the patients had lymph node involvement as well. Um, human papillomavirus status was negative or an unknown in nearly half of each group, which is a huge problem. Well, I believe it's a relatively large problem, Michael. Uh, are you happy for me to just kind of talk about why? <laughs> Please do, Josh. Yeah, so the HPV associ- is associated with significant risk of developing oropharyngeal squamous cell carcinomas and HPV positive disease is distinctly different to that of its HPV negative disease. So the significance of that and P16 in the non-oropharynx cancers is unknown, but the incidence is also much lower. Commonly, this will affect younger adults with no history of smoking or alcohol and also carries a much better prognosis than that of HPV negative disease. So the hazard ratio for deaths for patients with a HPV positive disease is thought to be as low as 0.6% compared to HPV negative. And the issue with this trial is that we don't know the status of half of the patients. So will this actually skew the results significantly in favor of maybe the docetaxel arm, maybe the standard of care arm? Why don't we hold on to our seatbelts and we'll find out soon? Well, yes, I guess the fact that they are unknown means that the proportion of patients who had, you know, a better prognostic disease at the at the outset is unknown. So it does raise important questions. And it is interesting. This is a recent study from 2022 and HPV testing is pretty universal and a pretty, it doesn't change the treatment, but it is a pretty universally used marker of sort of prognostication. So it is interesting that such a high proportion of patients had an unknown status. Let's get to what Josh calls the juicy bit the results. So the median follow-up of patients in this trial was 32.4 months, which a quick calculation in my head is a a little under three years. 
the compliance rates with radiotherapy were good. So in terms of uh, completing 100% of their radiotherapy, 89% in the docetaxelam versus 93% in the control arm completed 100% of their radiotherapy. Remember, radiotherapy carries the majority of the therapeutic benefit for treatment. The chemotherapy is merely a sensitizer, and so it is much more important to get as much radiotherapy into the patient as possible. 91% of patients in the docetaxelam completed 90% of their radiotherapy. The majority of reduced compliance to radiotherapy was due to adverse events. Uh, 11.1 versus 6.2% of patients had radiotherapy interruptions in the docetaxel and radiotherapy alone arms, respectively. The median treatment duration was 46.5 versus 47 days. In terms in terms of uh, compliance with docetaxel itself, 85% of patients received greater than or equal to five cycles. The reason for patients receiving less than that was, again, largely due to adverse events, most common of which were mucositis, dermatitis, and infection. So overall, higher rates of adverse events with docetaxel. This is consistent with data covering the addition of any systemic therapy to radiotherapy. There's data on cisplatin and carboplatin that highlights that the higher rate of adverse events is really something that you will see regardless of what you add to radiotherapy. But in terms of survival, the two-year disease-free survival was 42 versus 32% with a p-value of 0.002. Hazard ratio for DFS was 0.67. And this was consistent when adjusted for known prognostic factors with a hazard ratio of 0.63. Obviously, as we said, the biggest unknown here is P16 and HPV status, but when they adjusted for the slight uh, imbalances in ECOG, in tumor size and all of that sort of stuff, the docetaxel benefit was maintained. The majority of the benefit was with docetaxel was in improved loco-regional control with a loco-regional failure-free survival of 12.4 versus 5.9 months. Again, a significant benefit with docetaxel with a hazard ratio of 0.66. This is consistent with docetaxel's use as a radiosensitizer. 15 milligrams per meter squared is a teachy little dose of docetaxel, so it's not going to have much benefit in preventing distant metastases. It's purely to increase the, the effectiveness of the radiotherapy. Finally, in terms of overall survival, the median overall survival was 25.5 versus 15.3 months with a hazard ratio of 0.74. The two-year survival rate was 50 versus 41% and again consistent when adjusted for known prognostic factors. In terms of the forest plot, the benefit was seen mostly in patients who had an ECOG performance status of 2, T3 to 4 disease and N2 to 3 disease. So patients who would not usually get any chemotherapy in combination with their radiotherapy and patients with high volume disease. Interestingly, it is small numbers, but patients with hypopharyngeal cancer, thought to be one of the worst types of head and neck squamous cell cancer, also significantly benefit with a hazard ratio of 0.45. In terms of side effects, we've spoken about most of them, but again, there were more side effects with the dose tax alarm. 49% of patients had grade 3 to 5 mucositis, 52% had grade 3 to 5 adenophagia, and 50% had grade 3 to 5 dysphagia. This is consistent with anyone who's worked in the head and neck space. You're going to see people really struggle with these upper oropharyngeal and upper digestive tract toxicities. Hyponatremia was another significant side effect with grade 3 to 5 hyponatremia present in 30% of patients and dermatitis also present in 15% of cases. So overall, you are sacrificing tolerability 
for efficacy when you add docetaxel to radiotherapy. Josh is looking very intently at uh, something off screen here, but what are your thoughts, Josh, on the study overall? Good, bad, meh. I guess. It's a little bit of both. Well, there's three three options you gave me. I think there's a little bit of good and a little bit of bad. The good is that it does show benefit in what is can notoriously be a difficult cancer to treat, especially with the recurrences. The bad is that it was a single center study, which adds its own set of issues. And I think the thing I was trying to look at was what would be actually used as the other radiosensitizer in cisplatin ineligible treatment. So what I was reflecting on that, so if you can't have cisplatin as a second option, is it not carboplatin and fluorouracil? So that's one of the options. Um, In my center, we we tend to use carboplatin and paclitaxel, or we did before this study was published. So it is variable by center. Yeah, it's actually interesting you say that because I was looking up the cisplatin, sorry, the carboplatin and the fluorouracil, and I don't think there's any overall survival benefit. But I thought maybe you, uh, your center used it. I don't think I've used it very much either. But so I guess the question is, is this, is that there is definitely some benefit. There's also some more toxicities, but for potentially uh, quite a large subset of patients, it seems like a relatively good idea, but I just like some more research on it. Yeah. And I think it would be interesting to see a multi-center study on this. We might not get it, but a multi-center study on the use of docetaxel use, particularly uh, relevant for Australian uh, practitioners for patients from Southeast Asia and looking at different um, socioeconomic, different ethnic, um, ethnic groups and how the benefit might change. Uh, I think it is certainly something that we're starting to use uh, where I work more frequently. And, and it's definitely something that I think should change management. I, I suspect that we're not going to find too much better evidence for the cisplatin ineligible patients than the use of docetaxel. Yeah, I agree, Michael. And I've just found the article I was looking for, which is looking at absolute contraindications to cisplatin. And there is the the Gore-Tec 94-01, which allocated 226 oropharyngeal patients to receive either carbofluorouracil chemotherapy with fractionated radiotherapy or radiotherapy alone. Mind you, an old study from the 90s and what they found is that the combined arm significantly enhanced overall survival after a median follow-up of 5.5 years. So that's something that's interesting. And so I think there's a number of studies, and I'm not going to go through this all, but we will link it in. So I think it's a bit of an open space still because there's other chemotherapies that I'd be interested to see a comparison. As you said, a multi-center would be very worthwhile, and knowing HPV status is even more worthwhile just to see whether it was her chance that the you know, subset of these patients actually did better. Yes, absolutely. Um, and it would be interesting to see comparison even to cisplatin, I guess, but I suspect that's not something that we're going to get. Probably not. To summarise our first ever Spotlight episode, docetaxel, is it a game changer? Absolutely. For cisplatin ineligible patients with head and neck squamous cell cancer. We hope you've enjoyed this uh, first foray into a more detailed analysis. We will be coming back with this in a few weeks' time. Our next Spotlight episode will be looking at Enfortimab Bedotin in the bladder cancer space. So that's coming up in a few weeks, but stay tuned for more oncological goodness with Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. Bye.
you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts, resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonk.com. That's inquisitiveonk.com. <laughs>